Hey, everybody. Join us as we delve into our favorite dark tales and paranormal mysteries. Venture with us beyond the safe places that exist in daylight as we go Beyond Beyond the the shadows. Shadows. True crime. Paranormal. Hauntings. UFOs. Cryptids and unsolved mysteries. Conspiracy theories. Past lives. Reincarnation. And all the like are just a few of the topics that we will tackle. If it haunts your fucking dreams, then it will be on our show. Hi, and welcome back to Beyond the Shadows, episode 11. Welcome back, Shadow people. Uh, so we got to say, it, last week's episode, we had our, our by far our best uh, first week uh, since we started recording. So we just wanted to say thank you to uh, everybody that checked that out. We appreciate all you guys Definitely. listening. And if you don't mind sharing it with a friend, spread the word, you know, the more the merrier. You know, I got to say, though, I initially wrote off the, the big spike in the numbers due to the fact that I did the episode uh, shirtless. Yeah, but <laughs> that's, Scott, that's definitely why I listen. Scott had to point out that it's yeah. a, a podcast to me, and, that, and you guys couldn't actually see me. And then I was just, I was bummed, and I'm assuming it was just because it was a good episode. So I'm, I'm a little disappointed. <laughs> I was very disappointed because I was here recording with him. So. Uh, so this week we actually found a cool article that deals with the uh, the curse of the mummies, and they're talking about mummies all over the globe, uh, but. I wanted to get into the little the, the, the curse behind it before we get into the science. Uh, so King Tut's curse uh, is from 1922 when King Tut's tomb was discovered by archaeologist Howard Carter and financed by Lord Carnarvon. There have been rumors of a pharaoh's curse beforehand, but it was the opening of this tomb that solidified the myth. Shortly after opening the tomb, strange happenings and fatalities are rumored to have plagued those that were present. Carter sent a messenger to his home who found a cobra inside his canary cage, having swallowed the bird. Now, cobras were the symbol of the Egyptian monarchy. And that's kind of where the myth got started. Uh, not long after this, Lord Carnarvon was bitten by a mosquito. The bite became infected, and he shortly thereafter died. Rumor is that at the exact time of his death, all the lights in Cairo went out. And back in England, his dog howled and died again, supposedly at that same moment. But in reality, only eight of those 58 present when the tomb were opened had actually died within the next 10 years. Um, and, the, and the most likely to have been struck down was Carter himself, who actually found and opened the tomb. And he actually lived for another 17 years. So you figure back in that day and age, so you're talking 1922, the lifespan was shorter anyway. Right. So out of 58 guys present, you would assume a good percentage of them were going to drop dead in the next 10 years anyway, statistically speaking. Yeah, probably so. And it was only eight out of 58. So Yeah, uh, so those that, but there's some other cases out there, there where there's was, a lot more. Yeah. So there was another incident. So again, we're not talking just mummies in uh, – in uh, the Egyptian, although that's where most people associate it with. There was also a case in uh, 1973 in Poland. Right, so uh, a lot of these ones actually uh, passed, right? Poland in, uh, so I said 1973, it was it was King Casimir IV 
when his tomb was opened and it was sealed in the 15th century, actually 10 of those 12 that were present had died within just the next couple of months. Now, that to me reads much more like a yeah, curse. That would definitely come off as a curse, So. Uh, so anyway, scientists have kind of been looking into that and they have some possible – they think they have a, an explanation as to what's going on. Yeah, I think they, they believe that it's actually probably caused by uh, fungus, uh, aspergillus, and uh, it makes a lot of sense. You know, you figure yeah. all these these mummies are locked up in tombs that have been sealed forever, you know, water leaking, perfect spot for a, a fungus to grow. And not only that, it gets it probably mutates. I'm guessing I'm not big into the science, but you know, you figure this mold or fungus, whatever, I mean, undisturbed it's, it's, it's for thousands gonna, of it's years. It's going to grow for yeah. sure, and there's going to be a lot of it. I was kind of surprised that to hear that it was it killed that many people because aspergillus is it's nothing to mess with. I've yeah. seen I've seen people in the hospital with aspergillus infections. It's a pneumonia usually. When you get aspergillus in the lungs, that's when it's really bad, and it can if you don't take care of it, then it can spread to other body parts and stuff. Yeah. But it's usually something that. It affects uh, immunocompromised people usually or someone with like cystic fibrosis or, you know, something like that's where you usually see it. So I'm actually surprised. Like how many out of like 12? 10, out, 10 of, out of 12. That's a high percentage. 12, that's really high. So. And with the Egyptian one, they were talking over a period of 10 years. In Poland, they're talking only months. So right. that, that reads like – Yeah, that one comes off as yeah. a curse. But yeah, it's obvi- obviously something like that. You know, if yeah. you're looking at it scientifically, it's – you know, that makes way more sense than it an does. actual curse. But yeah, that's that's a high high body that's count. That's a very high body count. I remember when I was little, I hadn't heard about the uh, the, the one in Poland. But I when I was little, I was fascinated with King Tut's curse and whatnot. And even reading it then as a little kid, I remember thinking it's it's bacteria or, or mold or something. something. Like that's that. the most likely, especially to me, a curse. You know, eight out of fifty-eight, especially the lead guy doesn't right. get it. I always think of curses as like like the movie Final Destination, you know, with that like oh yeah, you can't moment. cheat death; it's coming for you, one after the other, after yep. the other, one way or another. The fact that the lead guy has survived that kind of just shoots holes through the whole curse thing. Oh, yeah, if there was anybody sure. that was going to go, it would have been him. All right, so uh, this week Ryan's going to give us a story. What are you talking about this week, man? Uh, so this week we're actually going to do the uh, Borley Rectory, which is in England, and it was once called England's most haunted house. Uh, it's, All right, it's, it's been five weeks since uh, Scott did the Snedeker episode, so we're, we're definitely due to drop another haunted house. Episode. Yeah, we got a few coming up, we I do. think, in the we works. Do. We so. got some surprises. A real good coming, one, Ryan's so. working on. So uh, anyway, we're going to get right to it. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. So the Borley Rectory was built in 1862 and was once described as the most haunted house in England. It was built to house the rector of the Borley Parish and his family. The building was built on the same spot as an earlier rectory that had burned down in 1841. The building was an imposing and somewhat strange-looking Gothic-style structure featuring 32 rooms and 11 bedrooms. Now, Borley is a small rural community of three hamlets located in Sussex, England. Any idea what a hamlet is? It's like, it's like a, a little village. A little right small there. village? Yeah, I, I think. I didn't brush up on my, <laughs> my, your, my, my on English. On English? My, <laughs> <laughs> the area houses less than 150 people as of the most recent census. Local legend uh, was that nearby there had been a Benedictine monastery built in uh, 1362. 
So as legend holds, one of the monks fell in love and carried on an affair with a nun from a nearby convent. When their secret was discovered, they were harshly punished, with the monk being executed and the nun walled up inside the convent and left to die. Well, you can't just braze over that one. She was walled up. For those of you who don't know what walled up is, they literally put you like up to a wall <laughs> and they build another wall in front of it. That tells you that was some badass nookie when they're willing to pay that, <laughs> that price. That had to have been good. But my other question is, these are religious people. So, I mean, whatever happened to like three Hail Marys and four Our Fathers? <laughs> you know, None of that they, shit. they just skipped right over oh, that. I mean, in not, the wall. Fuck it. Get in the Kill wall. him. Wall harass. <laughs> do, do you think the people, like, they come to the broily and they look outside and they're like, it just seems so much bigger for me. <laughs> Where is all that square footage? Well, it's a serious square footage in this bitch. <laughs> There's basically no information to support this story, but legends like this die hard. Now, hauntings were first reported as early as 1862 on the site by locals who heard voices when there was no one around. A nun was spotted numerous times over the years around the rectory and was assumed to be the walled-up nun still searching for her lover and the lost square footage probably. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Reports continued throughout the 1800s but became more prevalent around the turn of the century. In 1900, the four daughters of Rector Henry Dawson Ellis Bull reported seeing the nun on the rectory grounds at twilight, maybe 40 yards from the house. They tried to approach her and speak to her, but she disappeared as they got nearer. Rectory organist Ernest Ambrose said that the family at the rectory were all very convinced that they had seen an apparition on several occasions. Multiple people also reported a phantom carriage pulling up to the front of the rectory being driven by two headless horsemen. On June 9, 1927, Rector Harry Bull died and the rectory became vacant. The following October, Reverend Guy Eric Smith and his wife moved in. While cleaning out a cupboard, Mrs. Smith found a brown paper package containing the skull of a young woman. The discovery and removal of the skull seems to have kicked the supernatural phenomenon into high gear. Immediately afterwards, lights began turning off and on on their own. Phantom footsteps were reported around the house. Servant bells rung around the house despite no longer being connected. And Mrs. Smith also reported having seen the phantom carriage. So, yeah, this is like one of those cases where things get disturbed and then the yeah. activities kick up. You know, it happens with construction. Or, when you move something, it just seems they, don't, wall like, someone they don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, don't. <laughs> they definitely don't like being walled Remodeled, up. Yeah. I get that. Mm -hmm. The Smiths contacted the Daily Mirror and asked to be put in touch with the Society for the Physical Research, or the uh, uh, SPR. On June 10th, 1929, the paper sent out a reporter who wrote the first in a series of articles about the mysteries of Borley. The paper also arranged for Harry Price, a famous paranormal researcher, to make a visit to the house. Price arrived two days later, on June 10th, 1929. The incidents escalated after Price's arrival. The throwing of objects about the house, including stones and vases, began, as well as messages being tapped out from the frame of a mirror. The Price has tried several exorcisms, but to no avail. Supposedly, when Price left, the phenomena ceased. Smith's wife later said that she suspected Price of having conjured the phenomena. 
Uh, the Smiths did contact him, though, and no mention is made of what Mrs. Smith thought about the stuff that happened before he arrived. Like, I mean, you called for him to come out, right? and now you're saying that he conjured it all, which I get. Maybe he did. I wasn't there, but when you still called him out for a reason. All they mean actually made the things happen or made it up? No, like why, during the time when she was there, he didn't make it up. I think what they're saying is that everything that happened while he was there was because of him, like a sideshow, like he was – Okay. He was creating the phenomenon. Okay. But, like I said, you contacted him. So right. what was going on before he got there? And she might be right about that. I wasn't there. I just find, kind of find that an interesting side note. It's not like the entire haunting happened at his hand. Right. The Smiths left Borley in July of 1929, and for a while, no replacement could be found. The Reverend Lionel Algernon Foister and his wife Marianne finally moved in in October of 1930, along with their adopted daughter, Adelaide. Foister was a cousin of the Bulls and was quite familiar with Borley's reputation before he arrived. The paranormal activity continued and dramatically increased with the new tenants. Reverend Foister kept a report of all the phenomenon they experienced during their time there, which Marianne would also add on to. The whole family experienced a wide variety of dramatic events, but most of the activity seemed to center around Marianne herself. Bottles and other objects were thrown about the house. Their daughter was locked into a room with an old-style keyed lock, which had no key. Windows were broken for no apparent reason. Writing by unseen hands began to appear on the wall. Marianne was violently thrown from her bed in the middle of the night and on several occasions was attacked by an unseen force. Adelaide was on one occasion attacked by something horrible, quote, though what this was wasn't recorded. So these claims are a lot more than what was happening before. Yeah, whatever was going on has has, has really jumped up a notch, for sure. Professional medium Guy Lestrange visited the rectory and said, and this is quote, Later, being entertained by the rector and his wife, he heard for the first time of mysterious forms, male and female, being seen inside and outside the house, of lights in unoccupied rooms, of articles appearing and being thrown, of fires breaking out, of mysterious whisperings and unexplained writings on walls and scraps of paper. Once the rector told him he was working alone in his study when he saw a pencil rise from the desk and scrawl words on the wall in front of him. No hand was visible. End quote. The rector, however, kept detailed records and never reported any levitating pencils nor words being written in front of him, so Lestrange's account is not widely accepted. Marianne's name appeared on pieces of paper around the rectory several times. The family decided to try and establish communication and ask the spirit what it wanted. Rest was the reply. Later on, writing moved onto the actual walls of the house, and the family continued to try and communicate. There are several pictures that still exist of the wall communication between Marianne and the spirit. Some of the communication says, Marianne, please get help. Marianne, light mass prayers. Marianne, get help now, which is then followed by unintelligible scrawls. Marianne replies, I cannot understand. Please tell me more followed by more unintelligible scrolls. I still cannot understand. Please tell me more. I think I know what it said. Yeah. Help, I'm stuck in the fucking wall. <laughs> <laughs> Have you not noticed this fucking wall is ten, 10 square foot smaller than it should be? 
the couple's <laughs> toddler daughter was noted by one essayist to be an inveterate scribbler, as though this explains the phenomenon, which to me is just funny because she was like four or something like that. Five, four and, and you're looking at it, and there's some pretty big words and whatnot on the wall. My kid at four, I could barely fucking read his name, let alone like full sentences and shit. But right. uh, I mean, I guess you could use that to explain away some of the yeah, the gibberish and you know, the undecipherable read. shit. Maybe she wrote, but uh, some of the phantom writing is difficult to decipher and is generally unintelligible. But other bits match Marianne's handwriting almost exactly. And I'm not talking about Marianne's bits; I'm talking about the phantom's bits. So when you go back and look at them, there's almost a dead match on some of them. So it's, it's a little shady. Mm-hmm. Foister tried on two occasions to have the rectory exercised, but both were unsuccessful. During the first attempt, he was actually struck in the head by a stone about the size of a fist. The many experts that investigated the phenomenon and visited the house all agreed that Marianne was the center of the activity, whether she was actively involved or not. Later on, her credibility took a huge blow when it was revealed that she had been carrying on a long-term affair with a lodger at the rectory. Apparently, Frank- she doesn't know what happens to women who have an affair <laughs> in this house. <laughs> uh, Frank Fearless. He had no shit, right? <laughs> that doesn't generally end up well. Marianne would, Marianne would go on to explain that she frequently used the claims of supernatural phenomenon to conceal her affair, explaining away noises and suspicions with the mention of a ghost. Uh, now, going back, perhaps that something horrible that daughter Adelaide experienced was the sound of her mom banging the lodger while she was trying to sleep. Because <laughs> that would be horrible. <laughs> that is traumatic. October of 1935, the Foisters left Borley because of Reverend Foister's ill health. Now, side note here, I wanted to note that Foister was working as a missionary in Canada and struggling to make ends meet when he was offered the job at Borley. He and Marianne had also lived nearby another haunted house in Amherst, which had recently been the subject of a lucrative bestseller. Mm. Perhaps a handy solution for a chronically ill man. And his money troubles. Suspicious. Uh, like I said earlier, he knew the Borley Rectory before. He knew the family. He knew the story knew of the it. Story it seems awfully it. convenient. They were hurting for money. You know. Yeah. Yep. The house remained vacant for almost two years. In 1937, Harry Price returned and took up residence for one year. Through a newspaper ad and personal interviews, Price assembled a team of 48 observers mostly college students, to stay at the rectory and record any phenomena experienced. Uh, it's interesting to me that despite being the expert, Price himself didn't offer to stay there. <laughs> <laughs> he brought college He students. wasn't staying there. You know, you yeah. guys stay here and I'll give you about 11 cents. <laughs> I'll be in a park on the road. Yeah, we all know how reliable college students are. Just tell you yeah. exactly. Yeah. Don't, don't get too drunk. <laughs> Write down exactly what happened. Price and his crew conducted lots of experiments and held huge seances. During one seance in May 1938, medium Helen Glanville reportedly made contact with the spirits using a Ouija board and a planchette. The first spirit identified itself as a young nun named Marie Lair. She said she had left her religious order in France and traveled to England in the 17th century to marry a member of the Waldegrave family, the former owners of the Borley property, Borley Hall. 
She was said to have been murdered in an older building on the site, and her body either buried in the cellar or thrown into a disused well. You would think that the spirit knew, but mm-hmm. apparently you can only narrow it down to two of those options. <laughs> the writings on the wall were supposedly her handiwork. The second spirit identified himself as Sunix Emerus. He said he would set fire to the rectory that very night at 9 o'clock, March 27, 1938, and that the bones of a murdered person would be revealed. Uh, No fire occurred that night, but exactly 11 months later, on February 27, 1939, the new owner of the rectory, Captain W.H. Gregson, was unpacking boxes and knocked over an oil lamp in the hallway. The house had no gas or electric, and since water was obtained from a well, putting out the fire before it spread quickly proved impossible. The rectory was severely damaged, and the insurance company ruled that the fire had been set deliberately and refused to pay. And from what I've read, it was definitely set deliberately. The guy bought the rectory with the intention of burning it down. Oh, there's, really? no, there's no doubt about it. I usually take the side against the insurance company, so I'm going to say that's bullshit. <laughs> they screwed him. <laughs> a woman staying at nearby Borley Lodge said that she saw a ghostly nun looking down from an upstairs window but demanded a fee in exchange for her story. Price later excavated in the rectory's cellar and unearthed two bones. They were given a Christian burial in Liston as Borley refused to allow the bones to be interred due to the local opinion that they came from a pig. Uh, The ruins of the rectory were demolished in 1944, and the ghostly visions continued even at this point. Price was on hand during the demolition and documented the destruction from a distance. One picture appears to show a brick levitating in midair, but then again it could easily be a picture that simply caught a falling brick during the destruction. Price's reliability has been frequently called into question over the years, so it gets hard to separate the facts from the fiction. For every scary story, there is an offered explanation. The best voices for the haunting were frequently caught lying, especially Marianne, and perhaps her husband as well. Were they exaggerating a legit and scary haunting or trying to fabricate the entire tale? Now, to me... Something was going on at Borley for sure. I, I think there there was paranormal at the house, without a doubt. All right, I mean, you, from from the get go. All right, before you go too far into that, let's take it to you know, let's give our our scale one to ten. What do you think? The likelihood that Borley was haunted. Yeah, I'd put it at least a six. The haunting was yeah. A six? There, there was a six. Were, were some of these people lying? Absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And it almost seems from the get go, people were caught lying. It's right. like people are taking a legit haunting and just blowing it out of the proportion. But, I mean, every single family that lived there, almost every person in the house reported something. Right, and the people before. So, I mean, that's like what we say with a lot of hauntings. They always start out that we – yeah, there's probably a real haunting, something going on, and then they get the – you know, it goes too far. Yeah. Anybody, you know? like, yeah like, somebody Especially like, in this Somebody case, like Marianne just fucks up the whole story and kills all the reliability. Yeah, the when money comes into – you know, that's what screws everything up. When there's a chance of making some money off of it. Oh, yeah. Then, you know. You think that's is. like a modern phenomenon, but no. I mean, going back to the 1930s, people were somebody, – yeah. somebody wrote a book. They made some coin, and all of a sudden this guy wants the job. Him and his wife experience all kinds of shady shit. And maybe they did. Right. But they obviously blew it way out of proportion. But you see how much is stepped up when they, you know, 
Each person, it seemed to get a little worse. I mean, she tried to get money out of it and bang the lodger. I mean, right? she wanted the best of everything. She got she caught. She wanted it all. Yeah. That never works out. <laughs> she got Ask greedy. Ask the nun. She got greedy. Yeah, yeah I'm right. sure, right? <laughs> so. Anyway, right. hopefully you guys uh, like that story. If anybody has any, any tidbits or anything they want to add on or they know anything that we missed, that's, that's a really long story and a lot of stuff going on. I mean, the the – the time of the haunting, not my telling of the story. So we, I definitely could have missed something or anything. So if anybody has anything they'd like to add on or anything, uh, uh, write in at beyondtheshadows207 at gmail.com. Yeah, we appreciate it. If you guys send your stories, you know, or any comments or anything like that, send them in. We read everything. Definitely. So, all uh, right. Good we'll story, be, bud. We'll be right back with this uh, week's fire pit. Thanks for listening, guys. Love a good mystery that leaves you wanting more? Check out my podcast. Hi, I'm Kadra, the host of Perplexity, a Mystery Podcast. I tell tales every single week that have left me perplexed. You'll hear true crime cases, mysterious disappearances, learn about cults, hear baffling sightings of cryptids, chilling paranormal encounters, and even dark and weird history. I release new episodes every Wednesday, and you can listen anywhere podcasts are available. I'm also on Patreon, and you can even watch me on YouTube. Perplexity, a mystery podcast. Stories that will leave you perplexed. I guess you know what time it is. So this week on the fire pit, I reached into the email and uh, there was no fucking stories in there. <laughs> so you forced me <laughs> to call one of my ex-coworkers and guilt her into giving me a story for you guys tonight. So this is a story from Sarah, one of my former co-workers at one of the hospitals I used to work at. So Sarah said, one evening I was working a shift at your local hospital. I was assigned the post-surgical floor and was receiving report from the daytime therapist. He was telling me about the patient, we'll call her Mrs. Johnson for the sake of the story. He told me all the usual stuff and why she was there, her lung sounds, etc., etc. He and Mrs. Johnson, I'm sorry, he said Mrs. Johnson had a touch of dementia. And at night, she liked to talk to her reflection in the window. She ref referred to her reflection as Mrs. Johnson. <laughs> she liked to talk she like she was talking in third person. I think that's right. She would talk about Mrs. Johnson like she was her own person. On the post-surgical floor, the rooms were very large because they used to be double rooms and they're all changed to singles. The windows in these rooms ran the entire length of the room and were just large panes of glass. At night, the windows, when the blinds were pulled back to the side, looked like dark mirrors running the length of the room. When it was time for me to give Miss Johnson her treatment, I found her sitting on the side of the bed looking at the window, talking to her reflection. I asked her, how you doing tonight? She said, I'm good, but I think Mrs. Johnson might be hungry. Kind of laughing to myself, is, to myself, I said, is she? Well, what, what do you think she might want to eat? She told me probably some graham crackers or something. I told her after we were done, I would get her some. So I gave her the breathing treatment, listened to her lungs, and went and got her 
and the or the other Mrs. Johnson some crackers. This sounds like some shit I would have pulled when I was little and I got in trouble or something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> totally it not. wasn't Ryan. It was I remember, Ryan. <laughs> I remember this story from when she actually yeah. when it actually happened. So uh yeah. This one I this I, I like this story. When I left, I kind of laughed to myself because I could hear her talking to Mrs. Johnson as I left the room. It was funny, but something about it was kind of unnerving. It gave me a little bit of a chill down my spine. When I returned to her room four hours later to give her another treatment, I found her sitting in the same spot on the edge of the bed. I talked to her and asked her how she was doing and started her treatment. She replied, We're doing pretty good. I asked if she was tired and if she'd gotten any sleep. She said, no, we're not tired tonight. Yeah, it would start to get creepy. Yeah, right? I said, okay. I took out my stethoscope and started to listen to her lungs on on her backside. When I looked up, I could see Mrs. Johnson's reflection looking back at me from the window. I looked down and then back up again, and it happened. I was behind Mrs. Johnson as she stared straight ahead. But I 100% saw her reflection turn its head. I literally jumped back three feet and watched her reflection snap back and step with her movements. Mrs. Johnson asked me if I was okay and I told her I was fine and quickly shut off the treatment and left the room. I told some of my co-workers and they said that it was creepy but I could tell they didn't really believe me. But I know for certain that it was not my imagination. I know what I saw. I refused to take Mrs. Johnson as a patient after this, but nobody else had anything happen to them. It was the creepiest thing in my life. So that that is crazy. I remember when this happened, and she came out, and she she I was working with her that night. Yeah. This floor, this floor in the hospital stuff would happen. I have a story from this this actual same floor of the hospital. I was taking care of a patient on this floor. And this patient was like one of our frequent flyers. She'd come in all the time. You, when you work in healthcare, you get the sa- a lot of times a lot of the same people mm-hmm. rotate through the hospital. And this lady liked to get her breathing treatments. I mean, she you would give her a breathing treatment, you would leave, and 15, 20 minutes later, she'd be calling you back asking for another breathing treatment. So because of this, we would start writing. The, you'd have to tell her, look, you cannot have another treatment for at least two hours. And so I was in her room, and I was writing on her board. And she's in one of these rooms that she's talking about. It was a it was a double room, but it was turned into a single room. Yeah. So the, these rooms are actually not very often in the hospitals. There's much room in the patient's yeah. room, but these ones were big. And this patient was on the far side of the room, and I was writing on a dry erase board. I'm writing down the time as to uh, when she can have a treatment again. So she's not calling me 50 minutes. I'm doing this for me, not for her yeah. so much. So, like, you know, here, you got to wait at least two hours before you can call. This is the time you can actually have a treatment. And this is back when we wore latex gloves, you know. So, you got the the gloves now, they're, a lot, they're fit completely different. Mm-hmm. But with the latex, you can feel everything. And I had the latex gloves on, and I'm standing at the whiteboard with one hand down writing on the board. And as I'm writing on the board, I feel her... Like her slide her hand into my hand like she's trying to hold my hand, and it startled me. And I looked real quick, and she was in her bed. She wasn't up, I, and I could have swore she had come up and like tried to hold my hand. But while I was standing there, somebody slid their hand into my, and I could feel it rub across the latex gloves. You know, yeah. they kind of catch, and yeah. I felt the hand rub right into my hand, 
And it was the same thing. It's like her. I'm like, done. Write it down, and I'm out of here. It was Mrs. Johnson number two. (laughs) She thought you were looking good in those scrubs. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, a lot of things happened on that floor. I had another thing that happened on that floor that wasn't even – it wasn't even a ghost story, but I don't like clowns at all. Yeah, I'm not a fan of clowns. So I don't go see the Terrifier too. Then, yeah. <laughs> well, to be honest with you, I don't like people in costume. If yeah. I see somebody dressed up, I, I don't like it. I don't like people uh, have anything on that are walking real close to me or whatever. I don't even like Santa Claus. I know I'm weird, but You're one of those I, people that just assumes they're all pedos. Oh man, I don't know. <laughs> but with clowns. Clowns really bother me. Yeah, clowns are creepy. So we had a patient on, uh, it was this, was it the same floor? I think he was on this floor, but ended up on a different one. But I was giving him, I was supposed to give him breathing treatments that night. Well, they told me, like, he's a Shriner clown. He's a clown. And uh, so I'm like, oh, I said, well, he's not wearing his makeup, is he? And they're like, no. I'm like, all right. So I went up to do his treatment. The Shriners had got together. And they all came into the hospital dressed as clowns. I went up the top of that floor. There were 50 dudes in that hallway all dressed in their clown shit. And I'm like, nope. (laughs) One of the guys I worked with, Corey, he's like, what's the matter? I'm like, I'm not going down there. (laughs) I'd rather deal with a ghost than that shit. And he's like, what do you mean? That's like straight up horror movie shit. I said, I tell you what, you do this one treatment for me. I will do the rest of your workload. <laughs> and he's like, are you serious? And I'm like, I swear to God. And I took his I took his entire workload just to give up that one patient. I wasn't going down that well, hall. I've heard some of your stories that generally entitle, entangles like uh, smoking outside. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Clowns are worse. Treadmills and football yeah. games. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it wasn't happening. So no, That's not a ghost story, but I think I'm no. way more afraid That's of clowns. That's a good story. A lot of people go. are scared of clowns. That was probably before yeah. that little rash. Remember that, like, clown, oh, way clown-o-mania, that. like, five years ago where they were showing up all yeah, over the Yeah, this was way place. before that. Way before. I've never liked clowns at all. Oh, they're creepy. But, it, you know, it's kind of funny because it's one of these phobias that it, it's grown worse the older I've gotten. You know? Yeah. None of it used to bother, you know, the clowns always bothered me. But, like, some lady I worked with, her husband did dressed as Santa Claus, and he came in, and he came into the office, and I felt super uneasy. When someone, it's just like, I don't know if it's the disguise or if it, you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't, it's the costume, not the disguise. That's what it seems to me, like it's a yeah. fucking disguise. Like they're up to something. <laughs> something I'd, shady. I've never been a big fan of like the mascots when I go to like sports games and shit. No, they're They kind of creep me out and they always, they must know that they creep me out because they gravitate me like, like, like I'm a friggin' magnet. I, that's kind of funny. go to the Sea Dogs game. Were, I thought you were one of those <laughs> bronies I think that's because I got, because I got fired once years ago. So now I just hate all mascots. They took right. my job. But the one, the one of the Portland Sea Dogs, he always comes over to me like he knows that I don't want anybody. <laughs> it's like when they yeah, know. You like a freak out on him in front yeah. of the kids. Zone right Fuck in. off, yeah. dude! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, kids. <laughs> You'd be on camera beating the shit out of the mascot. Uh, so anyway, uh, if anybody has any stories uh, yeah, guys, they would like to send in, uh, beyondtheshadows207 at gmail.com. Yeah, and if you want, you can send your stories into our Instagram. You can send them into our, our Facebook page, you know, wherever. You know, we'll take them. We don't care where you send them as long as you send them to us. Yep, you guys sent us a couple good ones so far, so uh, keep them coming, and uh, we'll definitely read those in future episodes. And if you guys could hop on to, like, uh, Apple and maybe give us a rating, you know, that every bit of that helps get us out to other people. So, but anyways, thanks for listening this week, guys, and we'll uh, see you next week. All right, later.
Hi, my name is Joe, and I'm the host of Tales, Trails, and Taverns. In this show, Rob and I like to take an active approach by hiking out to haunted, creepy, and abandoned places. We love the adventure and discovering the dark history of the locations we visit. We release a new episode every Friday on Apple, Spotify, and Patreon, as well as bonus episodes on varying Tuesdays. But don't just take my word for it, we have great listeners who have left some awesome reviews. Oh, I love adventure, but during those times when I can't get to the outback, oh, I like to listen to Tales, Trails, and Taverns. Those boys dig deep into the dark history, and their first-hand experiences really delivers the excitement. This podcast is a beaut. Back when I was the governor, I didn't have time to listen to podcasts. But now that I'm retired from politics, I can focus on my two passions, pumping iron and listening to Tales, Trails, and Taverns. It doesn't matter who we are. What matters is that we all listen to Tales, Trails, and Taverns. I love listening to the podcast. Wait, what's a podcast again? It's an audio show you listen to. Oh, like on the radio? Sort of, yeah. Okay. I love listening to Tulips and Tiddlywinks. It's Tales, Trails, and Taverns. And what do you do again? Hike to scary places and drink beer. Sounds terrifying. Okay. I like to listen to Terrifying Tea Time, but not on the radio. Uh, okay, thank you. You did great. You're welcome. Say, you're kind of cute. Is there a Mrs. Tales, Trails, and Taverns? Now... Now you get it? No actual celebrities or political figures have endorsed Tales, Trails, and Taverns. All the reviews you've heard were written, fully, by the host, George Linux, as well as the impersonations of celebrities, politicians, and movie characters. I meant no harm. Please don't sue me.